This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Well, there isn't much doubt that one of the most transformative artists is Leonardo da Vinci. His work has stood the test of time as some of the most enticing in the world. Pieces like the Mona Lisa or the Last Supper resonate with so many people even today. And recently, another da Vinci piece, Salvador Mundi, broke all records for any piece of art sold at auction with a price tag of over $450 million. But what caught many people off guard is that the price well exceeded expectations and that it is also been updated and is not the quote-unquote exact original. So in that realm, we introduce you to Walter Isaacson, the former chair of CNN, as well as editor of Time Magazine, who's chronicled the life of Leonardo da Vinci in his new book titled By That Name as well. And Walter is currently professor of history at Tulane University, and he joins us here in our studio. Nice meeting you. Thank you for joining us today. It's great to be back at Penn. What is it that that attracts you so much to da Vinci? I mean, obviously, there are there are things about what he has done that, that really entice people. What is it for you? For me, it was the creativity, because I've written about a lot of smart people. I've done biographies of Ben Franklin and Steve Jobs and Albert Einstein. But what I came to see was a certain pattern, which, which was it wasn't just that they were smart, because smart people are a dime a dozen and often don't amount to much. They were creative, and especially so because they crossed disciplines. They were interested in everything. And that's what Leonardo stood for. He was curious about everything he could possibly know. So he doesn't think of himself just as a painter. He thinks he's an engineer, an anatomist, a scientist. Mm. And that's something that we all have to learn is not to silo ourselves if we want to be creative. That word curiosity is a great one because you use it quite a bit in talking about him. And when you think about the fact that in this day and age that we live in, in the digital world, we don't at times enough uh, cross disciplines, we aren't as curious as we probably should be. But when you think of back those days, I, I mean, it's amazing to think about all of the elements that he was involved with. Yeah, and the cool thing about Leonardo da Vinci is he's not like Albert Einstein. You know, you and I and none of our listeners, I dare say, are ever going to figure out how to apply tensor calculus to the curvature <laughs> yes. of space-time right. in order to, you know, update the theory of general relativity. But what Leonardo da Vinci did is he made a list every week of things he was curious about, like why is the sky blue or, you know, do birds' wings flap up faster or down faster when they take off or describe the tongue of the woodpecker. I mean, just weirdly things he was curious about. But that curiosity about everything leads him to anatomy, leads him to try to build flying machines. And it's what distinguishes his art because he connects us to nature. Mm -hmm. And every piece of art, including the Salvador Mundi you talked about, has unbelievably interesting pieces of science and optics included in it. So is it fair to say that all that he was involved with and all that he was interested kind of led to the art? The art was kind of the the, the final piece to the puzzle for him? He would not have thought of it that way. Uh, to me, yes. I mean, his yeah. art is what's remembered 500 years later. Yeah. But if you asked him, he would say that he didn't make much of a distinction between art and engineering and design and the brushstrokes of nature and mathematics and everything else. And when he turned 30, an unnerving milestone you and I can probably remember. <laughs> a couple um, of decades ago. Yeah, he <laughs> writes a job application letter to the Duke of Milan that's 11 paragraphs. 
And the first 10 paragraphs are all about engineering and science. I can divert rivers. I can build great buildings. I can do weapons of war. It's only in the last paragraph. They says, I can also paint and sculpt as well as anyone. So I think that even though we would say he's an artist who also did engineering and science, he would say, I was just interested in the whole of creation. But as you said, he wrote down so much of what he thought of on a daily basis. And his notebooks are, are, are kind of legendary for all of the ideas that just he saw in the course of his life, yeah. the course of his week, and, and wrote them down. Right. And he saw the patterns of nature, like how water swirls and curls when it hits an obstacle in a river. And he applies that when he dissects the human heart and he draws the human heart. And he said, this is actually how the heart valve opens and shut. It's from the swirl of water, not the, I mean, swirl of blood, not the pressure of the blood coming up. Just all sorts of discoveries that come from things like that. And it's so cool to have his notebooks because we have more than 7,200 pages that are still existent of his notebooks, which I dare say, you know, our tweets and our Facebook posts 500 years from now are not going to be accessible. So a tiny lesson in the book is paper is a good technology for the storage and retrieval of information. And whether you're a business person or a student or whatever, you should always have a notebook, put some stuff in it. And when the notebook gets filled up, put it in a drawer, and your grandchildren will someday uh, say, oh, look how curious and interesting Grandpa was. So what do you think it is in doing all of this work and looking into his life, what is it you think that you have taken the most from it that that maybe something that, that you've incorporated now into your life after all the fantastic things that you've done that maybe you hadn't thought of before? Absolutely. I've learned more from Leonardo da Vinci than any person I've written about because he makes me pause 20, 30, 40 times a day when I'm walking, you know, down Locust Walk here or where I'm looking at the river where Ben Franklin landed at Market Street. And I'm trying to be observant and curious the way Leonardo was. Like, why do the ripples on the river catch the light the way they do? And why are they not going exactly with the wind? What causes the water to ripple? Why does the water, you know, reflect the way it does? How does light hit a curved leaf? Or even look at the sky and say, why is the sky blue? Something Leonardo kept going back to over and over again. So if in our daily lives we can look up from our iPhones, look up from our work occasionally, and just marvel at some not miracle of nature, but something rather ordinary, like a blue sky or light hitting a leaf. Walter Isaacson is our guest. He is the author of the book, Leonardo da Vinci. You're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Again, not that he would say this, but when you think of all that he was involved with, I got the feeling in going through your book and, and reading more about him that he was truly one of the greatest minds that we have had on this planet. And he was a self-taught mind, which also makes him inspiring. Like Benjamin Franklin, you know, he didn't go to college. He had to, you know, he hung around colleges in order to teach himself. And the mind was great because it saw patterns across different disciplines in nature. And just like Ben Franklin loved to look at the whirls of air when he was riding along a road, and he compared it to 
uh, the Gulf Stream, which he had seen going across the ocean, and also north northeastern storm, you know, the northeasterners and storms that yeah. come up the coast. He saw the patterns of nature. So Leonardo da Vinci saw those patterns, and so to me, that's where the creativity comes from. Uh, what is it then uh, about da Vinci's work, his artwork, that uh, I mean, like in the case of Salvador Mundi, uh, as that piece of artwork was getting ready to go to to auction, the expectations were $100 million, $150 million. And here it goes for $450 million. And as I mentioned, it had been tweaked o- over time. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't truly the original, but it was still as valuable as anything. Yeah, it was, uh, it was restored. And so, uh, you know, it wasn't fully the original. But I think the fact that it went for almost half a billion dollars shows the continuing allure of Leonardo da Vinci through the ages. In Salvador Mundi, you see the blessing hand of Jesus, yeah. and it's reaching out, and it's very sharply delineated, meaning the lines around are sharp, which is unusual for da Vinci because he liked what's called somato, the blurred lines, like mm-hmm. around the face of Jesus. And you wonder, why is it that the hand is so sharp? And then I was reading his notebooks that he was doing at the time, 1503 or so, and he's talking about visual perspective and mathematics, but then he talks about sharpness perspective, that when something comes pretty close, like arm's length from your eyes, Mm -hmm. it gets into sharp focus, and so it looks more delineated than other things. That makes it so that the hand in that picture looks like it's coming out of the panel and blessing you. Mm. And that's a combination of science and optics with art and with beauty. And I say all that because it almost is a metaphor to answer your question, which is you kind of feel every now and then Leonardo da Vinci's hand coming out of the mists of five centuries ago and being very clear to us and blessing us. I was going to ask you if we still see that influence in Da Vinci today, and obviously you feel that we do. Look, I mean, I, I flew here today. I'm looking right, because I'm yeah. a bit more curious than I used to be at how the wing of the American Airlines plane is curved. And it's curved on top the way certain bird wings are. And it's because Leonardo discovered what we now call Bernoulli's principle, which is when air has to go over a longer distance over the top of a wing as opposed to the bottom, the air pressure is lower yeah. and it helps lift. Now... That's something we probably learned in ninth or 10th grade, and we forgot by 11th grade. But with Leonardo, you try to make yourself look at all of these beautiful things, and you realize, oh, yeah, he's reaching me 500 years later. Uh, He also had his shares uh, of problems that he had to deal with uh, growing up and in his lifetime, Uh, being gay, uh, illegitimacy. Those are hard things for a lot of people to deal with in general. How did he deal with them? He was very comfortable with who he was, and he was a bit of a misfit. You know, as you said, he was illegitimate, gay, left-handed, a vegetarian for a while, somewhat of a heretic. But when he arrives in Florence at about 12 years old, He's already that way, and he's a t- everybody loves him in town. He's good-looking. He's charming. Yeah. He's able to solder copper balls to the top of the dome of the cathedral as well as paint the ripples past Jesus' ankles and the baptism of Christ. He's a talented kid, and that's a key we got to learn in business and in universities and everything else, which is at certain times when you have a diverse group of people and you have a live-and-let-live mentality. 
You saw that in 1470 in Florence. You saw it exactly 500 years later in the 1970s in the Bay Area of California, when all of a sudden you have everybody from the hippie movement to the Silicon Valley engineers uh, creating the Homebrew Computer Club and people like Steve Jobs. You see it in Philadelphia, which is a very creative city because it's got such a mix of people who are both interested in art and music as well as science and engineering. And then in other places... When you don't have that tolerance for a person like Leonardo da Vinci, you're not going to get any Leonardo da Vinci's. Do you think that we have the ability to create the—I guess create is maybe the wrong word. Do you think that we have the capability in this kind of fast-paced, live-by-the-second mentality to be able to have that, that type of mindset today? Yeah, it's in the DNA of our nation. When Ben Franklin came to Philadelphia, he was a misfit, you know, a rebel. He was a runaway. He was somebody who comes into the, you know, the town of Philadelphia and there's Moravians and Jews and Anglicans and Presbyterians and freed slaves and, you know, people of all different religions. And it's called the city of brotherly love. And he fits right in. It becomes a creative city. We are looking at that happening now in America, not just in Silicon Valley, but city by city. Leave aside our national politics, which is kind of poisoned and broken at times. There's too much, you know, bitterness in our debate. But you go to Chattanooga, you go to Detroit, you go to Cleveland, you go to New Orleans or Austin or Philadelphia, or I could name a dozen other cities where people have come in. There is a burst of business entrepreneurship and startup mentality that comes from creative people saying, hey, this is a cool place. I want to be here. Walter Isaacson is our guest. He's the author of the book, Leonardo da Vinci. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. You said uh, about in the uh, in the days of da Vinci how uh, he was loved by a lot of people because of what he could do. Was the reaction that you found out by people also a little bit of surprise because he did have this ability to be able to be so multifaceted on a variety of different levels? Actually not, because that was a talent that Florence had developed in the 1470s. He goes to work for Andrea Verrocchio's workshop. Sometimes people call it an art studio. But it wasn't an art studio. It did everything. It made beautiful cloth for the new merchants of Philadelphia. You know, you're somebody who does a lot of finance and business topics. They had just discovered the Medici family, Lorenzo de' Medici and a mathematician who becomes Leonardo's friend, how to do bookkeeping with debits and credits. That doesn't sound like a huge invention, but it's huge. It makes Florence the banking capital of the world and the venture capital, you know, I mean, and and they're, they're doing things like that. And these workshops, like Verrocchio's workshop, there are about six or seven of them. They are doing things like architecture with, you know, Brunelleschi and Alberti figuring out architectural perspective. They're doing art. They're doing engineering. They're, as I said, soldering the ball to put on top of the Duomo. And they're painting a lot of Madonnas for these new rich bankers who realize, okay, I got to show my piety as well as my financial success. One of the other great works that he has is uh, Vitruvian Man. And uh, what I didn't realize is that I guess there had been another version of that done by an, another uh, a person who uh, uh, Da Vinci was was very friendly with. And it, it you could see see as you lay out both pictures in uh, in the book the differences between the two but you can see that one works off of the other right in fact there are three or four people who are with them when they go to Pavia this town near Milan and they decide to look at how a 
church should reflect the proportions of a man. They read the manuscript of Vitruvius, the ancient Roman architect. And the lesson of that story partly is something I'm sure they, you know, Wharton is great at teaching, which is that creativity is a team sport. You know, yeah. uh, innovation comes from collaboration. And so you have these three or four friends, Leonardo da Vinci, Donato Bramante, an architect, uh, Francesco Di Giorgio, uh, Andrea, uh, other people there, including Luca Pacioli, a mathematician who's trying to square the circle. And they're all looking at ways to grab this concept of Vitruvius, of the proportions of a man are or, or reflected in the proportions of the world and the proportions of the spirit. And so they draw a man in a circle, in a square, and it's supposed to look like how you would proportion a simple church. And then Leonardo does it. All of his friends have done it as well. But Leonardo takes it up one huge notch because it's a work of great science with the body exactly proportioned right. A work of great art with a circle is on the base of the square, but goes above the square so that, as Vitruvius says, the navel is at the center of the earth, the genitals are at the center of creation, or the center of the square in this case. And it also is a work of almost unnecessary beauty. You look at it, and Leonardo has just made it with the shadings and the intense stare of the man in the circle in the square, standing spread eagle. And then you look at pictures of Leonardo da Vinci when he was young. Yeah. Curly, blonde hair, chiseled jaw, well-muscular proportioned chest. You realize it's a self-portrait. Yeah. Here he is standing naked in the earth, in the cosmos, and in all of creation saying, how do I fit in? But as mentioned in in your book is the fact that when you look at that that piece of work, uh, the fact that just in terms of the body as it is laid out in that piece of work, that the right foot is pointed forward mm-hmm. and the left foot is pointed out so that you can get the shape on both sides of what the foot actually is. And then the foot becomes a measurement guide. Yeah. And so everything is, you know, the length of the, from the knee to the hip or whatever is done because he did 230 measurements on his students and assistants to get every proportion of the human body right. So when you look at Vitruvian man, you can't ask that question we discussed at the beginning of this interview, which is, was that a piece of art or was that a piece of science? Right. You look at it and you say, Leonardo's making no distinction between the beauty of art and the beauty of science. And there's probably a lot of crossover on a variety of different things that, he's, uh, that he has done in his life. You look at the fetus in the womb, one of the great anatomical drawings, uh, which is in the uh, flyleaf of my book. Yeah. Uh, and you think, that is a stunning piece of art, but it's also a perfect piece, almost perfect piece of anatomy, because he actually had to dissect a human, a human and a cow, and so yeah. has it almost right. But he's, once again, in everything, including in the smile of the Mona Lisa, which is... 16 years of tiny brushstrokes to get the optics of the corner of the lips right so that the lips, it flickers in a way. The smile turns on and off depending on your angle of view. All of that is combining art and science, you know, technology and the humanities. 
We're talking with Walter Isaacson, uh, who is a professor of history at Tulane University and the author of the book, Leonardo da Vinci, uh, here on the uh, University of Pennsylvania campus today. Great to have him with us. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. It's funny, we had talked on this show uh, recently about the fact that uh, seemingly when we think about history, uh, there is a period of time where history kind of stays in place and it's fresh in our minds. And then in a lot of cases, it goes away. In the case of Da Vinci, that's not, as you lay out expertly, that has not happened in over 500 years. And it doesn't seem like we should expect any time in the future that the works of Da Vinci, whether they be art or whatever, will be going away any time soon. Exactly. I mean, he did theatrical design, but then he made sort of aerial screws to bring the angels down from the ceiling. And then, because he combines his fantasies with reality, he's trying to do flying machines, that helicopter that he's so famous for having drawn. And so that's what makes him so relevant to the present. That period of time, the late 1400s, you have Gutenberg, you have Columbus, you have Leonardo, you have Michelangelo, Amerigo Vespucci, and you have places like Florence that are so uh, nurturing of creativity. And I think those don't happen often in history. But the goal of wondering why does this still affect us, we should say, how can we recreate that sort of atmosphere, that ecosystem that leads to connecting commerce and business to creativity and art and engineering as well? Do you think that's, a, that's something that is far off for us right now, being no, able to connect I, I all see those? That, I see that surprisingly happening in this country that, first of all, it happened in, the, as I say, the 1970s when we create the microchip and transistor, sure. the packet switch network, the personal computer, and then all of those merged together to become the digital revolution. We're doing that now with big data and health and other things to have a health technology revolution. We're doing uh, data analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence. But I was just, you know, down in Houston where they're connecting that to the energy industry. America is astonishingly creative and creative in ways that connects it to commerce, whether it's life sciences technology being done at the University of Pennsylvania or energy technology being done in Houston. And the good thing about it is it's no longer just a Silicon Valley engineering phenomenon. It's connecting information technology engineering to other industries, you know, energy, health, music, whatever it may be. And the other part, as you kind of alluded to before, the fact that we're in a in kind of a, a world right now where entrepreneurship and, and the thought process of building out from a variety of different elements, it's not just in Silicon Valley or here in Philadelphia. It's in places like Cincinnati or mm-hmm. Tuscaloosa. You know, there are so many cities around the country that, that are, are kind of leading to that nurturing area that you talked about. Steve Case, the, an old colleague of mine who helped uh, create AOL, is going around the country on, call, on a bus called the Rise of the Rest Tour. We're stopping in places like Tuscaloosa and uh, Chattanooga and yeah. Detroit and other places to say you can be entrepreneurial centers. One thing I worry about is there is a divide in this country between uh, places that have become very creative and entrepreneurial, whether it be Austin, Texas, or Houston, or Chattanooga, or Detroit, or Philadelphia. And then, you know, a few counties away, 
they're a little bit left out. There's a bit of a divide yeah. that's happened between the entrepreneurial startup creativity of some counties and parishes in this country, uh, usually in creative cities that have things like music and food and art and, and creative people want to come. And you see that in our politics, too. Our politics is not divided necessarily between red states and blue states. It's divided between, you know, sort of uh, uh, red counties and blue counties yeah. in which you can be in Austin, Texas, and it goes Democratic overwhelmingly. And you go one county, you know, go to King County or something, you know, a little further away, and it's overwhelmingly Republican. So I think we have to make sure that this rise of entrepreneurial creativity hits every part of America and doesn't leave people behind. It's been great meeting you. Thank you very much. Thanks for being having me. Walter Isaacson, the book is Leonardo da Vinci. It is available in bookstores and available for purchase online. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.